Welcome to The Blueprint, a podcast for you and your life as a professional. The people I have conversations with don't have to be famous. They have to be making a living doing what they do. My goal is to get you the information you need to make real decisions. Start a career, change a career, get your money right and get a handle on your operations. This is a career day in a box podcast. I am Philip Llanos, and maybe this is the blueprint for you. Hey everyone, on this episode today, I have an awesome guest. And I know a lot of people are always like, oh, I have an awesome guest, a great guest. But why this guest, it really actually, I can confidently say is awesome, is because he's going to teach you how to take control of your money. And it's not like World Financial Group or Primerica or all those multi-level marketing. This is a person who is financially well off, doesn't have to be on this podcast, and is, as a mission, trying to educate people on how to make investments in the right way. Jeremy Schneider runs Personal Finance Club. You can find him on Instagram and you can go to his website. He's got a course coming out in October. This is something you have to listen to all the way through. And knowing what I know about this episode, you're going to want to anyways. And now, Jeremy Schneider. And sync. Right. You know, the way I look at a podcast is always like, I want people to be a fly on the wall hearing a conversation they weren't supposed to hear. Yeah, because that's, that's what makes it. Yeah, that's what makes it the good stuff. And, I, I mean, I feel like it's the Joe Rogan technique where it just you know, and I think you share some qualities with him, which is just it's very conversational. And and I feel like what makes him so popular is he often just like asks the question that everyone in the audience is like, "Yeah, but what about?" And then like Joe Rogan says it, <laughs> and and it's and it seems like an easy thing to do, but so often interviewers are like sticking to a script or they're like, you know, have their own no agenda way, or whatever. And, no Joe, and Joe Rogan's like, no, like, why, like, you know, like, how did you do that or whatever? And so I feel you like can't you can't script. You can't script what you want to yeah. know in the moment. Right. Exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's a good book called the third door that talks about that. This kid found like the, the, a way around everything. Uh, there's like the first door is like being in line at a club. And the second door is knowing somebody at the door. And then the third door is like you jump in through the kitchen door and you go through the back. And this kid wrote this crazy book where he, then he tried to interview Bill Gates and the, his mentor told him, don't pull out the list of questions. So you're right on the money about that. Really? Uh, nice. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you more about it later. But what we were getting at where I feel like we were picking up traction as we were warming up for this was I asked you about um, like, you don't have to do this at all. You don't have to go out of your way to teach people about investing. You talk about how, you know, you 70-year-olds who have 10K like left, that's going to be a life of poverty. So you made it your mission to try to help people who are 25 years old build to that moment so they're not living in poverty. Is that the only motivation behind? Like, do, is this something personal to you? Were you at that point in your own life? Um, you know, I don't really have a rags to riches story. Um, I was kind of like in a middle class, upper middle class upbringing. Um, you know, I, I I think that I just am motivated by what I see in the world. And so I see that there really are, there is this like big gap between, you know, of wealth and equality between the haves and the have nots. And it's like largely, you know, it's a multifaceted problem that has like, you know, racial and socioeconomic, you know, roots and you know, but I think one of the big problems or one of the big solutions at least is education. And so, um, if I can like bring some education and, and so, yeah, my own personal story is like, I was kind of like upper middle or middle-class or upper middle-class upbringing. I went to like a public 
college, I started a company, I sold it. Um, and now I have about 3.5 million bucks in the bank. And so you're right, I don't need to work anymore. You know, with three, three and a half million bucks based on how much money I spend, I basically short of meltdown or something, I probably will never need a job for the rest of my life. Um, and so the thing that I love to do is basically try to take my, like my little view of the world, which is came from a place of privilege and a place of having a lot of money and bringing that to people who may not have seen that before. And it, and it can be any, you know, like most middle-class, upper middle-class people all the same don't know anything about money. You know, they just, they work every single day of their life. They, the money comes in, money comes out. And so I think, you know, that financial education is like a critical missing piece of our American experience right now. Huge, huge, man. I mean, I'm first generation born American, right? Um, uh, my, my mother was like Finnish French and my dad is Mexican, but my mother wasn't around and my father couldn't be due to like uh, <clears throat> ALS, which is like amyotrophic lateral sclerosis at yeah. a very young age. So I didn't have any parental guidance and I've been for years, I would tell myself, oh, I should learn how to invest. And I never did it. But you know why? It's because there's no examples in my environment. So you're right. There's like, there's a lot to look at. Uh, and even if I had friends who told me about books like, um, I, I think, it, what was it called? Capital by Thomas Piketty, I think it was called, uh, where he talks about like, basically, it's this long book that talks about how you can never out earn the GDP. Right now, what does that mean to someone who has a job at uh, Burger King, you know, right. I got turned down to work at McDonald's, so I'm not, I'm not looking down at it. I literally, they literally told me I was overqualified. I don't even know what that means. But for somebody who's just working at Burger King, Carl's Jr., let's say Ralph's, um, another grocery store, like Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, but Whole Foods and Trader Joe's is not bad. <laughs> They're just going in day in, day out, earning their, their, their cash and, and going to bars or doing whatever they're doing. But they don't see the future. And even if they do, they don't have anyone in their family who can help them. The first thing you would tell that person to stop doing or start doing, what would that be? Like just off the, hey, you right there, you're young. You have no idea what you're doing with your money. You want to do something with it. Here's what you stop. Here's what you start. I think the very first thing I usually talk to people about is the massive power of compound growth. Because I think that the experience you just described is get money, spend money, money comes in, money comes out. That's normal. The normal American experience is when you get money, people kind of break it up in their mind how they're going to spend it. Just like, okay, you have 500 bucks, what are you going to spend it on? And so I, you first kind of need to inspire and say, hey, if you don't spend it and, and instead you put a little bit away over time, you get this massive extreme power of compound growth. And so I'll give you a very specific example. I did a study. I went back and downloaded the U.S. stock market, the S&P 500 data over the last 100 plus years. And I said, for every 40-year period in that 120-year time range, whatever year you started, whatever year you stopped, if you put $250 per month away and just let it ride in the stock market, just put it in what's called an index fund, an S&P 500 index fund. Don't get too, don't get too scared about that complex sound of that, but just basically invested it in the most simple way possible. You let it ride for 40 years. At no, there's no year you could start or finish where you'd have less than a million dollars. In fact, the average finishing uh, amount is 1.9 million, with the best ever being right at the end of the dot com boom, like in the late 90s, and the worst ever being right at the trough of the financial crisis. But even the worst ever was like 1.2 million. 
And if you held for a few Which more years, bad, yeah. <laughs> right, not bad. If you held for a few more years, you know, the market went up after that. So it would be more like two or 3 million if you would have held until current day or whatever. So 250 bucks a month times 40 years is, I think it's like $120,000 saved, but it's $1.9 million. With compounding interest. With compound interest. And so, so it's just, you know, you need that spark to understand, hey, if I take a little bit off the top every month, and pay myself first, invest it first, put it towards the future, put it towards that compound growth, you have massive rewards waiting for you down the road rather than spending it all today. And $250 is like two, three nights of going out with your friends uh, at at a bar. Um, So if you just switched over to inviting people over for drinks instead of going to a bar, you'd have enough money to throw at that a month. Totally. There's like a million different ways you can like, you know, and you know, I don't, and I don't mean to like ignore the, you know, people in extreme poverty. And if you're having trouble, like even sure, they can't even afford 250. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to like mitigate that, but for most people who are, you know, middle-class who are working jobs, there's things you can do. Another example I love is let's say you had a normal job and you spent, you happen to spend every single dollar of your job, but then Two nights a week, you bartended. So instead of going to the bar with your friends, like you mentioned, you actually worked behind the bar and you made a hundred bucks a night bartending, which I think is pretty reasonable in most parts of the country. And so that was that bring in two hundred bucks per week, eight hundred bucks per month. If you spent for your day job, you spent every single penny of it, but then your two nights a week side hustle for ten years from the ages of twenty to thirty, you invested all of your side hustle money, just that two hundred bucks a week. When you turn 65 and you never, and then after the age of 30, you never invest another penny. So just from 20 to 30, all you're doing is investing your side hustle. And then at the age of 65, that money from your 20s side hustle would be worth over $5 million. Oh it's, my God. It's like mind blowing. <laughs> is it and too late to like, invent the time like, machine? <laughs> right, exactly. I know, I know. All of, everyone who's listening who's like, 30 like fuck man um, i'm 31 you know, like, man so <laughs> uh, you blew it you know? i mean yeah you can just do it at least 75 i'm 65 but you know the, <laughs> you know the, the earlier you start the better obviously but no the, the point is like small changes like that where it's like you know and if you look at the person i just described compared to all their friends it's about the same they're you know this one's working at a bartending job that it's not like i have friends who are bartenders i have friends who are not no one cares but like those little changes that being purposeful about putting some money away first into that compound growth scenario is how you really build massive, massive wealth for yourself. That's huge. And that also addresses the sort of, if you're in abject poverty, consider it, if you can just dedicate just a little more time to earning money specifically for that, you can do it. And you can get out of there. And in 10 years, 10 years is not a long time. Not when you're looking at, uh, the way time flows naturally from when you're 20 to 30. I mean, that time passes by so fast. I'm yeah. still looking at it like sometimes I forget I'm 31. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I wish you would have been my big brother or an uncle or someone in my life at that you're time. Still, I mean, you're still 31 is still extremely young. So don't, you know, don't think, don't look backwards. <laughs> time, on, time only flows in one direction. Like, for example, I was, I was 31 literally two months ago and today I'm 39. I don't know how that happened, but somehow <laughs> in the last two months, I, I aged eight more years. I'm turning 40 in November. It's terrible. But, but yeah, it, it definitely goes fast. And and yeah, if you just put the effort in for that for 10 the next years, 10 years. go find the blink of an eye. 
And then you're like, oh, okay. And, you know, as fast as it goes, if you're consistent over that time, you know, massive change can come, right? You know, if you, if you just keep borrowing money for cars and spending every do dollar you have, you'll still be broke in 10 years. But if you take those little incremental steps and put that money away or, you know, grow your income or grow your side hustle or advance your career or whatever, 10 years later, even though it feels like a blink of an eye, you'll have made massive progress. That's, this is huge. And, and I would say, let's, let's go back and unbox it just a little more because it, I know that if I was, I'm, it's not the first time I'm hearing these terms, but if it was the first time I heard these terms, I would have glossed over until you said about $250, right? I would have just been like, okay. So I myself have tried to go and open something up uh, based on a book I had read by Tony Robbins called like Money Master the Game. He talked about Vanguard. That was the first time I heard about Vanguard. Nice. And I was like, okay. And so then it was in the back of my mind forever, vanguard.com or whatever it is, right? Um, not to be confused with personalfinanceclub.com, which is where people should start. Um, so I Vanguard. went to Vanguard.com is a great place to start. <laughs> so, my, so, my, my, website, my website costs me money. So <laughs> <laughs> that, Their website makes you money. <laughs> right. they, yeah, that's true. They do make me money. Well, with the education you give people, it'll make them money too, man. That's the thing. <laughs> One thing I learned, you got to invest in yourself. Okay. Without getting sidetracked here. So what, what I remember was I went to Vanguard.com. I was super psyched. I had just come across your profile on Instagram. I had been reading this other guy, Phil Town, only because uh, his daughter and him started this podcast called Invested or something, which is something you may want to look at being a guest on. Uh, but all these sources of information didn't even tell me, step one, log in here and choose this thing. I was like, okay, well, I must be an independent investor because that's what I'm doing, right? right? So I just had to like break it down. So I went into the independent investor options and that's when I found out you need at least $3,000 to start the account there or $1,000 for something called a target rate date account, which I, I don't know, right? So not only is there an education gap and just learning how to make this account properly, but there's also like, you have to know what these terms are even to create the account which is why I see most people go get a financial advisor. But if there's anything I've learned is that you can do this without a financial advisor. Totally. And so to, to your point about how intimidating is, if you can take one thing from this podcast, it would be my two rules. I have two rules of personal finance club. Rule number one is live below your means. That means spend less money than you make. And rule number two is invest early and often. And so what is investing? You can figure it out. But if you do those two things, even if you're not investing well, even if you don't understand it perfectly, even if it's suboptimal, but if you do those two things, you will build wealth, you'll get ahead, fast forward through your career, you will be very wealthy. And if you don't do those two things, if you, sp if you don't live below your means, if you spend all your money, and if you don't invest early and often, then you'll be broke. And so I guess, for the people who might be intimidated by dipping a toe into investing. First thing that you always should come back to is spend less than you make. That's rule number one. Invest the difference. That's rule number two. Um, that said, yeah, I think like the, the thing that people most get caught up on is like um, this, like the logistics of like, how do you invest? And so like, I've, I've got videos where I literally just like go to my web browser. I type in vanguard.com. There's a big button at the top that says open account. I click it. It asks for my name and social security number and stuff because there's tax implications, which is why they need your social security number. I type that stuff in without sharing my social security number, of course. And then, you know, just go through the sure. steps. 
And it turns out like it's a little bit hard, you know, like it's not as easy as opening a Venmo account or something. Uh, one of which is betterment.com, which is one of my favorite ways to invest. Betterment? Um, but Vanguard for sure. It's kind of, yeah. So, so it's what's called a robo advisor. Basically Vanguard is great. The, the investing is perfect in my opinion, but the interface is very, you know, very, not very confusing, but like, it's not good like UX UI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. They didn't. They don't have like the super modern. But Betterment is basically takes. In fact, invests in Vanguard funds for you, but then just makes it really, really simple. So you just like drag sliders and answer some simple questions. And, and it's that's like, okay. You're investing. So, literally, B E T T R M E N T. Yeah, it's better. B E T T E R M E N T. Betterment. Yeah, yeah. Betterment. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Betterment.com. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, and so, yeah, and it's it's easy to Google and and it's Betterment is what's called a robo advisor. So you said people run to a financial advisor, which is very problematic because financial advisor that term doesn't mean anything in the United States. You know, anyone can call themselves a financial advisor. Only certain types of people can sell financial like certain financial investments. But what happens is insurance salesmen call themselves a financial advisor, yeah, and then basically advise them to buy crappy high fee insurance products which is not optimal again better than spending all your money that's where most young people get caught up world financial group primarica oh, yeah, all, all of, that's yeah. their first experience that's why investing in business and getting wealth is so confusing for young people yeah yeah and, and i know like when you when you dip your first toe into that investing world and you you see like insurance and bitcoin and day trading and and options and forex and and uh, pork bellies. And, oh, and, Forex, and, like, man. Like, Don't even get me started. <laughs> they're like, they're like, what is investing? And it turns out when you remove all that nonsense, investing is very, very simple. It's basically buying into the full stock market. So you guarantee your fair share of all the stock market growth and what's called an index fund, which is exactly what you buy with Vanguard or Betterment, and then just investing early and often. And, and basically, the more simple you make it, the more wealthy and more optimal that investing strategy is. Yeah. So, to your point, yeah, you, you can go to Vanguard, follow the steps, buy an index fund. Um, you know, it takes a little while. If if like that sounds too scary, just go to Betterment and answer the questions, and that will that will get you started. <laughs> it's you could do that for your whole career; it'd be nearly optimal. Or you could do it for a few years until you really understand it. Then go switch to Vanguard. Either one would be fine. That makes it almost as easy as it could possibly be. Yeah, I didn't even I mean, know about it, Betterment. It, like relatively new, there's like this new crop of these robo advisors. Wealthfront is another one. SoFi, SOFI is another one. Um, I think Betterment's kind of the biggest and most trusted at the moment. Um, they charge a very small fee. You know, financial advisors generally charge one to two percent of assets under management per year, which is so crazy. You have, I mean, most people think one two percent that's nothing, but I, I realize that's actually a big deal. Right, because over fifty years, that one percent compounds just like positive growth that compounds negatively. And over, you know, actually a 2% fee over 40 years, like over a typical 40-year career, erodes over half of your portfolio. It's Jeez. pretty crazy, right? Yeah, it's pretty ugly. Um, so Betterment does charge a fee. They charge 0.25%. So it's about, wow, you know, almost way 10, less. Yeah, it's like almost 10 times less than a 2% fee. And, you know, it's not great. Like, I'd prefer it to be zero. Um, but, you know, for that 0.25%, you're getting something which is, they're they're making sure that you're correctly invested in all the different holding index the funds. hands, yeah, like, right. And like I said, if you if you did nothing but that for your whole forty year career, it'd be fine. Or if you did it for a few years, then figured out how to switch to Vanguard to eliminate that fee, that'd be great too. 
So Vanguard doesn't have any of those fees. So every potential, you know, basically anything you invest in, there, there's there going to be a fee, yeah. Fees. And so the the most typical fee you'd find through Vanguard is what's called, you know, you basically invest in mutual funds through Vanguard. And a mutual fund is when a bunch of people mutually put money into like an account, a fund, a mutual fund. And the reason we invest together is because for you or me to go buy every stock in the stock market would be logistically a nightmare and would require like millions of dollars of capital to basically buy all these stocks correctly, right? You know, you or I could go to Robinhood or something and pick and choose stocks, but that's much less likely to optimize your wealth than to buy into an index fund, which is to buy all the stocks. And so, but when you when you buy into a mutual fund, someone basically collects all that money, buys all the stocks internally, then sends out the sends out the um, the profits, um, and for that they charge a fee. Sure. Traditionally, historically what's called actively managed mutual funds, which is when there's a financial advisor who's sitting with his hands on the reins of that mutual fund, charges like a one to 2% fee for that service. But the reason Vanguard is so special is because Vanguard said, hey, we've looked at the data and all these guys that are charging one to 2%, they're all just trading back and forth with each other. And they're not, they're not beating the market, they're just giving you the market minus the one to 2% fee. And so oh, when you look wow. at all the actively managed funds, like 90 over any, any meaningful period of time, five plus years, like 95% of them lose to the market, right? So you could just buy the stock market and guarantee yourself your full share, or you could pay these guys to do it uh, in, in that one to 2% fee, right? So Vanguard said, hey, we're going to do the same thing, but instead of having a guy decide what stocks are going there, we're going to have a computer do it and basically just pick all the stocks. And instead of charging one to 2%, Vanguard's total stock market index fund, which is VTSAX, which is you know probably the most popular uh, mutual fund in the world, they charge a 0.04%. Oh, that's ratio. nothing. That's worth it. Right. So you know, 0.04 compared to 2% is I think what 50 times less or 100 times less. It's like so much less. It's like literally, you know, I think it's if a you service have, fee. <laughs> right. Right. If you have if you have a hundred thousand dollars invested, two percent would be uh, two thousand bucks per year. 0.04% would be 40 bucks per year. So it's a difference between 40 bucks and 2000 bucks every single year, right? 40 wow. bucks is like, you know, you lost it in your jeans pocket. 2000 bucks is like, you know, rent for a couple of months or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's what makes Vanguard so special. Okay. Which, which sort of, while we were talking, it made me think about something that I feel like a lot of people are looking at today and um, considering because they probably never heard of Vanguard and they for sure didn't hear about Betterment. But you know what they have heard about? You mentioned it. There's Robinhood. There's a Stash app. Acorns, I think, is another one. Yeah. And then there's this real estate one, which might be a subject uh, entirely different. I think it's called High Rise or yeah. Rising. I forget what it was. I'll look it up again. I think it's called High Rise. Yeah. But it's it's like the High Rise one or what, uh, whatever it's called, that app for real estate. I should really know this. Um, but it generally charges about $500 entry. And then it's supposed to give you a share of real estate, which is something people consider. But most people are on the Robinhood, Stash, and Acorns. Are those good places to start? Because I tried it once and I, I made like, I think it was, I don't know, in a year, I'm negligible. There was nothing that I could see. And I was mostly the one putting yeah. the money in. And I was like, is this even working? Is it worth it? So 
you know, I like those apps because uh, they basically make it more accessible for people to get started. Sure. And Vanguard, for whatever reason, their website's old looking is is intimidating to people for people to get started there. Um, I, I would almost put Betterment in the same category as those other four because I think it is just an app that's really easy. I think Betterment's actually a lot bigger and a little bit more traditional in terms of their investing strategy. Um, Acorns is actually really good. It's like a very easy way to get started. Inside, in, and inside of Acorns, um, you do invest in index funds. I think they're, um, I think they have like the gimmicky, like round up your dollar thing. Like yeah. That, you know, that doesn't really do anything for me necessarily. I think it, you really got to focus on putting real amounts of money in there every month. Um, but their investing strategy, I'm on board with. It's they're buying and holding index funds. It's the same thing. Um, Robinhood is the one out of those I think I like the least because Robinhood is basically like sensationalizing individual stock picking. Which is like um, uh, and so let me Fidelity tell you, and then like E-Trade would be, right? It's kind of the same thing. So for sure, you can you can you can buy you can even buy an individual stock in Vanguard, but Vanguard that's oh. not Vanguard's specialty. Um, but you know, like E-Trade or TD Ameritrade or Fidelity yeah. is our places where you could go buy an individual stock. And you know, buying an individual stock is good. It's not bad. You know, like if if you go and just randomly pick thirty stocks, you buy all thirty of them, hold them for forty years, you'll do extremely well for sure. But it's not optimal, and I think it opens people up to a lot of really bad behaviors. And so let me tell you a little bit of a story okay. <laughs> about about the stock market. Okay, and so. The stock market goes up about, on average, 10% per year over long periods of time. You know, this year at the moment, at the moment, we're up about 5%, despite being in the middle of a global pandemic and having this horrific like, crazy. stock market crash that happened in February and March. Um, but we're still up 5%. Last year, I think we were up like 30% the year below before we were down 5%, the year before we were up 15%, whatever, you know. So there's a little bit of variation, but over long periods of time, we average up about 10%. So that's what the whole market provides. On top of that 10%, if you instead of just buying the whole market, you can pick and choose stocks to try to beat that. But let's say like I invested in Apple and Tesla and I made 12% when the market went up 10%. That 2% by which I beat the market is called alpha. It's basically defined as how much you beat the market. It turns out, so you know, if I if I got 12% and the and the market got 10%, that's great, but I can't claim I made 10, 12% because 10% was like the rising tide that raised all boats. And I only beat that by 2%, right? It turns out the sum total of all alpha in the market is zero. Because if I beat the market by 2%, someone else by definition had to have lost by the market, lost to the market by 2%, oh. thus making the average market the 10%, right? So if you're trying to beat the market, you're basically saying, hey, I think I can beat someone else, which like, American dream, like bootstraps, like sure. uh, self-starter, like like I, I love that mentality. But here's the problem: this isn't like your local like corner poker game where you can look at the two idiots in the table and say, "All right, well, I, I can beat those two idiots." Because the thing is, the market is what's called efficient, which means the sum total of human knowledge is constantly and instantly being priced into every single stock in the market. So, if for example, there's a news story that gets released that says uh, Tesla killed a bunch of people and the, the automatic driving thing is not going to happen anymore. Like instantly the Tesla price is going to plummet to reflect that available information. You couldn't have predicted that because we don't know news stories ahead of time and you can't act fast enough to capitalize on that because the next sale that happens, no one's buying Tesla for that high price anymore. The next buyer is going to buy it for the new low price reflecting that information. 
and it gets worse. So there's, it's a zero sum game, it's an efficient market, but there's very big bad players in this market who are playing the same game. So for example, there are literally companies who put uh, spaceships into space, satellites into space that take pictures of the Tesla factory to count how many cars are coming off the line to be more proactively predictive of what Tesla's next quarter numbers are going to be so that they can make a decision yes or no, is Tesla more likely or less likely to beat the market so they can try to capitalize on some of the alpha that I described, the zero alpha that is available to the sum total of the market, by the way. It gets worse. There are, there are, there are automated, what's called uh, algorithmic trading companies, which hired PhDs in computer science. I know because I have a master's in computer science, and I know guys who work for these companies who literally sit there and write programs to crunch massive data sets. They literally look at Twitter, they look at bar barometric pressure in Manhattan, they look at historical data, they look at every single piece of data they get their hands on. And then they buy server space closer to the trading servers by a quarter of a mile so they can make a trade a thousandth of a second faster than the next algorithmic trader they're competing against. There's also, I mean, there's, you know, there's also mutual fund managers, there's also these analysts that go to Harvard, that they all are trying to do the same thing. They're all trying to get alpha. And then you, when you go to Robinhood and you make a trade, you're trying to get alpha, it turns out you're the sucker at the poker table because those guys are gonna know what you're trading before you are. And here's the kicker. Oh, do you know wow. how Robinhood makes money? Robinhood makes money by selling their human user trading data to the algorithmic trading companies. No. So those algorithmic trading companies, like their number one best data source, I've heard this in person from someone who works there, so their number one best data source is taking human trading data and doing the opposite. So when you go to <laughs> Robinhood <laughs> and buy Tesla, the algorithm knows that's not a rational choice. You're putting too much value into Tesla. I'm just using Tesla as an example. Sure, sure, stock. sure. You're putting too much value to Tesla. They sell Tesla and they make money because, because uh, you, what you've done is not rational. And so you're losing alpha and they're gaining alpha. So for those reasons, you don't want to be playing that individual stock picking game. You want to buy the entire stock market to cut all those clowns out of the equation. You guarantee yourself that full 10% every single year. Thus, that's how you, that's how you turn your 250 per month into, into 2 million over the course of 40 years. That's how you optimize your wealth. Because the sum total of alpha across the entire market is zero. And that's why index funds are more important uh, or a better long-term strategy than trying to beat the market, which is something that everybody's going up against. And at the end of the day, it's still a zero-sum game. Exactly. And the index fund, what it does is it guarantees you that 10% or whatever the market provides at the minimal cost. Even... Those satellite guys who are counting Tesla trucks coming off the line or whatever, they have to pay for the stupid satellite to go into space, which ain't cheap, right? And so they, in order to, for them to make money, they have to pay back all of their, you know, satellite and sure. store and you know, storage space and their analysts oh, and everything wow. else. And then they have to make money. And where do they get that money? Probably from Robinhood traders, you know? So, um, you know, I know it's very tempting to think like, ah, oh, Tesla's the future I know or Apple's great, but all that, everything you know is already priced in the market and everything you know, or everything I know, or any other person knows, any individual person, we have a subset of the sum total of human knowledge. But the sum, but the entire set of that human knowledge is constantly being priced in those stocks. So the wise, experienced, humble, like disciplined investor is gonna say, hey, 
I'm more likely to get burned by doing this than I am to beat the market. So I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to buy my Vanguard index funds and focus on the important thing, putting more money in and leaving it for a longer period of time. Okay, which 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 brings me to my next uh, my next question. There's a lot of people that I've come across uh, in the tech world as like I I made friends and you know I'm an outsider coming in. I was I was a musician actor would be who got tired of being broke trying to be an artist and I was like you know what I need to learn how to make money. Uh, and most people are sold on the American Idol dream or what have you to some degree, and especially in like Los Angeles and New York. So the first thing I heard about were people who were living off these things called dividends, which are the profits that are share that are, that you earn on your investment. But somebody was telling me they found a way to live where they made like 3K in dividends a month and were able to leave their initial investment inside or something like that. And so they had this recurring or this revolving door of just cash that was, that's how I understood it. Basically, they got a check from themselves, from their investment every month that was like 3K or whatever it was back like five years ago. Um, and that they their investment continues to grow but they themselves live on a 3K a month uh, stipend that they pay themselves from their investments. Is that something that's realistic? Or did I understand that entirely wrong? Yeah, uh, you know, if you have enough money, it's certainly realistic. So just to, to lay some found, or ground, groundwork is when you own a share of stock, like let's say when I bought a share of Apple stock, I can make money from that stock in two different ways. One is by the change in share price. So if I am one of those Robinhood investors, for example, right. I could buy a share of Apple stock today for $200 and sell it in a year for $250 and I've made $50. Bucks. During that year, I held it. So I made $50 bucks in the change in share price. But also during the year I held it, Apple pays dividends to its owners, which is basically Apple is conducting business. They're selling iPhones and iTunes and uh, laptops and everything else. And then they're profiting. And some of those profits they use to basically repay their investors. And so when I hold when I hold one share of Apple stock every quarter, which is how often Apple chooses to pay out the dividend, they, you know, they're going to throw me like a dollar or something like that. Right. And so if I own 3000 shares of Apple stock, then, uh, then yeah, I'd be getting like $3,000 a quarter or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, for sure. Dividends are great. They're a very crucial part of the total growth of the stock market. Um, that said, I don't chase dividends. I don't go and pick and choose stocks to try to buy dividends for all the reasons I mentioned. When you buy a total stock market index fund, you automatically get all the dividends of all the country, all the companies. So there's, you know, in Vanguard's total stock market index fund, there's about 3,500 stocks or so. Not all of them pay dividends. You know, I actually don't know what percent off the top of my head, but maybe half or two thirds or something pay dividends. So for, for those like two or 3,000 stocks that are paying dividends, you collect all those dividends, you know, as part of it being a mutual fund, it, it collects it for you. And then VTSX and Vanguard pay you quarterly, once every quarter. So then you get a check. So, um, you know, the exactly $3,000 a month thing isn't super logistically realistic. That's just not how it works. In fact, a lot of dividends are paid out in December at towards the end of the year because the companies do things uh, financially during the calendar year. And so, you know, when I look at my own dividends, it's kind of like small, 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 big at the end of the year or whatever. Um, but but for sure, dividends are a critical part. If you have enough money, for sure, then you can live off the dividends. Um, that said, I don't chase dividends. And in fact, you don't even need to live off just the dividends because historically the stock market grows about 10% per year. But currently the U.S. stock market it's some total dividends is paying about 2% per year. 
And so, you know, if you can live off just 2%, that'd be fantastic, but you don't actually really even need to. You can, you know, they, they say the safe withdrawal rate is more about 4%. So you could actually take all the dividends every year and sell another 2% of your portfolio every year. And the remaining 98% of your portfolio, despite all the volatility of the stock market is gonna, the growth is gonna outpace what you took out such that you'll never go broke. Wow, okay. And the reason why uh, the you were keeping it more like in percentages instead of like if you hadn't, like, because there's a specific number you see, you keep saying if you have enough money. So let's say we're not chasing dividends because clearly you've outlined that strategy is risky, right? And if you're really trying yeah. to, to, to create wealth for yourself, don't bet against the market and bet with the market and invest as a smart person would in an index fund, which is the sum total because it's a sum zero game the other way around. So what's a good amount of money that would actually like that you that you should consider having in the market that would then grant you a, a decent lifestyle? Um, sort of like the whole, like right now, if you were to make three to 4K a month doing whatever you're doing, right? Um, something around that. But let's say you have to start looking at it less like a month and more annually, right? So because yeah. of the, the way it's paid out. So let's say people want to earn what, like 100K a, a month? That's, I mean, a year annually, that's what people want to, that's the lifestyle that most people want to live really. So what's necessary in terms of an investment to live that 100K lifestyle? I'll tell you exactly how much. Um, it turns <laughs> out that it comes back to that same thing, the safe withdrawal, right? So if you for example, if you have a million bucks and you take out a hundred thousand bucks per year, you're taking 10% per year out of that, which is about what the market returns. But if the market has a couple of bad years and then you take out a hundred thousand, you can go broke, right? So mm. 10% is too much to require too much to like recover from the volatility that's built into the market. But 1% on the other hand is, is too little, you know, 1%, if you have a million bucks, you take out a thousand bucks per year, that's 1% then, right? Yeah. Then you could live a hundred years and never go broke. That's not even including any interest that would be in your savings account or whatever. And I don't think anyone listening to this podcast realistically has a hundred years of retirement ahead of them. No. Unless you're a baby listening to this podcast, in which case good for you, baby, because you've really <laughs> taken your financial future by the horns. Uh, but you probably need to work baby first before you have any money. So unless you're going to trust fund baby, then you can turn off this podcast, I guess. <laughs> uh, so to answer your question, so 10% is too much, it's too risky. 1% is too little, it's too conservative. You know, the answer is about 4%. How much money you want to spend per year, let's take your example of 100,000. You multiply it by 25, that's how much money you need in order to take the 4% out per year. 100,000 times 25 is, drumroll, $2.5 million. So if you want to basically live like a baller on a six-figure salary, living off the dividends, you need 2.5 million in the bank, right? And so I started saying that I have about 3.5 million. I don't live nearly on 100,000. I'm living on about 40 or 50,000 per year uh, because I want to keep building my wealth. I'm still young. I don't know what the future holds, the whole thing. Um, so I'm not trying to like maximize my you know, safe withdrawal. But you know, rule of thumb, you take your annual spending, you multiply it by 25, and that's your retirement number. That's your FU number. That's how much you need to not have to work anymore to basically be free from your you know, day-to-day -day job, work optional, financially independent, whatever you want to call it. That's, man, you literally just unlocked it. Like most people sit there and they think to themselves, oh, I want to be a millionaire and this and that, but they don't look at what it would look like annually. 
to be able to live that lifestyle everyone is chasing. And the fact that a smart investor like yourself lives on 40 to 50 a year also speaks volumes to something that people should be aiming for. If this is something you've been able to do and you live, you look like a happy person, you don't look, you know, I mean, I don't know you right well. I mean, it's the first time we're meeting, but I, I you generally get the sense of someone's energy. You know, it seems like not only are you able to be give generously information, right? Um, but you continue to invest yourself. So if those qualities are built into what you're doing and you're able to choose whether or not you want to start a new startup, like all those things, all those variables tell me that you're a person who's pretty happy with where they are in life. And if that is the case, then aiming for a forty dollars to $50,000 a year lifestyle is probably a safer bet while continuing to maximize your investments. That's that sounds like that's a, that's a that's an aim a lot of people should have and maybe something I'm going to look into myself when I ran the numbers I was like oh I want to have a house and uh, it doesn't have to be a big house but you know I want to be able to also afford to to provide for my family and this and that and for at current rates 40 to 50k seems to be where it's where it's feasible you can do that yeah. and you're not working you're spending your time doing the things you want to do while also researching your investments yeah. So I think you kind of speak to a mindset thing there, which is people have this idea of being a millionaire and making it rain. But the thing is like, if you have a million dollars, you know, if your net worth is over a million dollars, then you're technically a millionaire. But if you spend it all, then you're not a millionaire anymore. Then you're broke again. You're, you're just a broke guy who broke person who spent a lot of money. Um, and so, you know, and the mindset is really hard to shift because I think that like one of the things that you kind of have to wrap your head around is that you'll never ever be rich until you have more than you want, right? If you, if I have 3.5 million and I desperately want 7 million and I, then I won't ever feel rich, right? I'm mm -hmm. like, oh man, like I, I live in a nice place in San Diego. It's like, you know, you, you, your listeners can't, but you can see behind me. It's like, it's a two yeah. bedroom condo. Like, I think that's pretty baller. But it like is. right next door to me is like- I want the same the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the guy next to me is like, he's got the corner lot. It's like twice as big as mine. It's like brand new. I was like, dude, that, you know, and if I like every day I came home and was pissed about that, like I wouldn't be rich. I would be poor because that guy's rich. But, you know, but if I am happy with what I have, which I happen to be, then I am rich. Right. And so if you can't wrap your mind around that, then you'll find you're going to get to have a million dollars and then you'll still be poor, which will suck. Right. And so there isn't some like, you know, the, the image of wealth we see in pop culture about you know, rappers making it rain and NFL stars and like Bentleys and cars and whatever, like that's not rich. That's like spending. That's not wealth. That's just spending money, which brings like very short term endorphin boosts, but does not really bring true happiness. Ask any celebrity who is depressed or, you know, NFL players who go broke or whatever. Um, you know, that's like so common. It's basically like a cliche at this point. People, wealth is about spending less than you make, having a lot, having freedom, being able to spend time doing what you want, being able to make freedom and make choices. That's what real wealth is. But if you're so focused on the materialistic millionaire thing, like you're going to be disappointed. Mm, that's huge, man. Which I think uh, brings me closer to like uh, something that maybe for somebody who's been saving a lot of money, it's not me. It's this is for this is not for me, but this is for someone who might be listening to this. Let's say they've been saving money, but they don't know what to do, but they know they want to create a fund for like their kid to eventually be able to go to college without having to think about it. Um, the same rules apply that we've been discussing so far. 
Yeah, I think for most, when I get the question about the kids, I think for almost everybody, the answer usually is invest for yourself first. Mm. And so I think that one thing that most people don't even know is that um, there is an estate tax and a gift tax in the US. So if you're a wealthy person and you leave a bunch of money to your children, the government wants to tax that estate, but there's an exemption to that estate tax. And the current exemption is over $11 million, Whoa. which means you can give $11 million to your children, either during their life, during your life or in, at your death, that is not taxed at all. So people get so, and you know, I don't know why it's just like this common thing that like they feel like they need to give the money to their kids now, but like you can invest for yourself and simply gift them the money later. You know, if you are planning on having an estate worth over $11 million and you want to like, you know, avoid or evade sure. or whatever that tax as much as possible, like this is not the podcast for you. Like, like my personal passion does not lie in like finding multimillionaires tax breaks. Like, I just don't think that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. But like for normal people, just invest for yourself, you know, set a good example, talk to your kids about money, show them what you're doing, why you're getting out of debt, why you're investing early and often. And then you can just simply give them money later, right? You know, the college thing is a little bit different because there's there's a thing called a 529 account, which is a bank account that is in your name, but has you name a uh, beneficiary. So you can name your child as the beneficiary. And that bank account, you can invest inside of it with index funds. And then there's a great tax break. And so basically, and but the money has to be used on educational purposes for the child involved. So if you're a person who is out of debt, except for your mortgage and your own um, investment is solid, your own retirement is well planned for. If both of those two things are true, then yeah, I would probably open a 529 account and then keep investing in index funds for your child. But if you have non-mortgage debt or your own retirement is not secure, it's not time yet to like, you know, you're, you're drowning in an ocean. It's not time yet to go help your kid because you're just going to pull him down with it's time to make sure that you have a solid foundation once you're no longer drowning then you can you know it's like the uh the oxygen mask rule if you're on a plane yeah. like you make sure your own mask is uh, in place before you, you know the reason that that rule exists is because if you don't do your mask first then you'll both die sure. because you don't have any oxygen right so you got to take care of yourself first and then when you're financially secure then you help the kid don't try to be a drowning person throwing a lifeline to someone else because it's not going to work I mean, the, the, that's, that's so good to know. And it, 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 I think it redirects a lot of energy to where people might be, um, <clears throat> stressed or anxious about, excuse me. And so there's only two other things I would like to cover if you have the time for it. Let's do it. Okay. I um, love this stuff. Yeah. One thing you talked about is debt and the other is, um, owning a home or, or owning a place to live, right? Like you yourself have a condo, right? So like, was that something you built up towards? Or is it is there some is it something that someone can build up towards using investments? And then the other, of course, is debt, which we'll cover later. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, my thing on Instagram is I basically piss people off when I put a spotlight on the costs associated with home ownership. So, it turns out that if you buy a home, like if you bought a home in 1980 and owned it until today, that's 40 years. Um, the 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 price of that home has appreciate, appreciated about 4% per year, which is nice. You know, so a $100,000 home in 1980, if you project out 4% growth, is worth about $280,000 today, which is a big difference, right? And so a lot of people see that and they're like, great, I bought this for 100, I got for 280, I made 180,000. But they 
they didn't make 180,000 because they were paying for it that whole time, right? You were paying a mortgage, you were paying mortgage interest, you were paying property tax, you were paying uh, realtor fees when you sell because people move on average every 10 years or so. You were paying uh, property insurance, you were paying maintenance for the remodel you did to, in order to get that 4% to like come to fruition. And so when you take into account all those costs, your primary home loses money. You know, all that money you spend, you get some of it back when you sell, but you but you lose money. And so, so home ownership isn't the one and only path to great wealth. In fact, I don't think it's a good investment at all. I think it's a bad investment um, because you lose money. So the good investment is things like investment real estate where you're buying a property where someone else is gonna pay you rent or index funds like we talked about. And so, you know, some people who are listening are gonna be screaming at me saying, hey, but with rent, you lose all your money. Like, yeah, of course that's true. But what I think a lot of people make the mistake of doing is they are renting for like eight roommates and then they go buy a home that is a $3,000 a month total cost of ownership. And so, you know, would you rather lose 800 or would you rather lose most of 3000? And the answer is losing 800, all of 800 is better than losing most of 3000. That's an extreme example. But the point is, I don't think homeownership is the only path to building wealth. I think if you want to be a homeowner, you plan to live somewhere for at least five years, which is kind of the minimum to make it financially viable. You want to deal with maintenance issues. You want to, um, you know, do the upkeep and handle the toilet clogs yourself. Then yeah, for sure, go buy a home, but just make sure it's like on par with what you're spending for rent. Make sure it's a, as modestly priced home as possible. Should you invest to get there? In my opinion, no. It just turns out any money you plan to spend within five years is better just in a savings account than um, invested because five years, there's just not enough time for that compound growth to take hold and give you a massive return, but there's enough time for the volatility to really hurt you. I did another little analysis that basically said, if you're saving up for a home that you're gonna buy in three years, you know, you can get there in three years in the savings account, or, or on average, you can get there like two months earlier or three months earlier by investing. So it'd be like two years, nine months versus three years. but that's that's good three months earlier but if the bad thing happens and the market tanks by 50 percent two months before you want to buy a home then it's going to push you back another three years or whatever so um i would say just say say you know pay off your debt save up for a, a down payment a house in a regular old savings account and make sure to buy a modest home or apartment however you choose to live okay okay so if i wanted to own a condo and sort of live that lifestyle, that 40, 50K with the condo, just put that money in a savings account so it isn't affected by the volatility in the market at any given time and uh, then be ready to pay when it's time. That's what I do. Although if you're, if you're, if you're actually retired, you know, I I would want to like have that home paid for. And so maybe you'd want to have your, you know, your, your nest egg of 25 times your annual spending plus a paid for home, then you're kind of in a real position of, of strength for uh, for financial independence. But you, you're in LA, right? Yeah, I'm in LA. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's crazy out here. <laughs> I mean, people like people like in San Francisco and LA and like maybe New York, like the rest of the country doesn't even know what's going on. It's just like so bananas. Like yeah, like modest, crappy home in a terrible area, like million dollars, like minimum. It's just so yeah. Like, yeah. I live in Highland area. Park, which is which is the, the, an up and coming area, but it still looks like East LA. So yeah. it's like <laughs> what and and homes are ridiculous. Yeah ridiculous yeah and, and you know also on the on the on the coast like sale prices are really really high relative to rent prices rent prices are also high don't get me wrong 
let's like the, the sale, like the purchase price to rent price ratio is extremely high. And so to move from, from renting to owning, like very, very rarely makes financial sense. So again, this beautiful two bedroom condo, you don't see behind me if you're listening. Um, I paid for in cash. I paid for it. There's $712,000. I just wrote a check and paid for it. It's been a terrible financial investment. Like I would much, I would be much, much financially better off with that money in the market growing for me at 10% a year, making me another 70,000 bucks a year compared to this house, which is making me nothing. In fact, it's, you know, and, and this, and this, this condo, I pay my property tax bill is like 700 bucks a month. Uh, maintenance is a few hundred bucks a month. Uh, proper insurance is a hundred bucks a month. Uh, my utility bill went up because I'm responsible for all the utilities as opposed to an apartment where they're lower. It was like not hundred bucks, but like I'm actually paying more monthly to live in this place, which is hundred percent paid for no bank involved. I'm paying more than I was paying for my apartment, right? So, and I paid $700,000 in cash. Plus uh... by the way, another $100,000 to remodel. I'm actually $800,000 deep on this place. And I'm still paying my monthly bill is still higher than my apartment, right? So financially, this has been a horrifically bad decision, but wow. I'm rich and so I can afford it. So I've made a decision to like spend money to increase my standard of living, but I would definitely have not done that. You know, when I was a millionaire for several years, still living in a one bedroom apartment that was uh, my, converted from my friend's garage. For years I lived there from, yeah, 2015 to 2019 after I was a millionaire. Four years I lived there as a millionaire. And it was great. I built tons of wealth and like most of my wealth is thanks to that, that frugality. So that makes so much sense. Um, <laughs> I never looked at the cost uh, structure that way, but you could literally, you could feasibly live that, um, that let's say you have that, that 2.5 million uh, in an in investment there that you did over a series of years. And uh, you're living that 40 to 50 K lifestyle, but you're living in like a one bedroom, two bedroom, if you want, whatever, you'd still be better off in terms of cost versus owning a home or or owning some kind of condo or property because of all the costs that are that come with it just because you want some space even that whole idea of i don't owe the bank anything like uh the the bank is the only person that wants your money or the only entity that wants your money that's true uncle uncle sam still charges you every single year just for living you know just for owning land that idea of never paying something again for a place you live is non-existent no it's not true (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, your water heater goes out. There's another thousand bucks. Your furnace, you might do a remodel. I mean, the the the, the costs of home ownership add up. So to answer your question, like I'd say, it, it 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 matters dramatically more on what you rent or buy than whether you rent or buy, right? So if you're if you want to live on fifty thousand a year and you're renting a five thousand dollars a month penthouse, then yeah, you'll go broke. Um, but if you're renting an 800, 800 bucks a month modest one bedroom and then you want to go buy a three bedroom house that's going to have total cost of ownership of $3,000 a month, then the buying would be worse, right? So, um, it, you know, it's whether rent or buy, it matters a lot more about minimizing your personal um, residence expenses. Genius. No, that that's huge, man. Um, it brings a lot of clarity, especially from someone coming the other side, owning a property and going, you know what? I should have stayed a renter. <laughs> that's <laughs> to be yeah. able to share that. That's, that's huge. Able, like, yeah. Because then your money could have been kicking ass in the stock market and the and, and index fund. I mean, that's seven eight hundred k that you could have just been up. Yeah, exactly. You know, my like this that seven hundred grand I spent. You know, some people listening might be saying, "Well, why didn't you get a mortgage? Then you could have it in the stock market and have debt." 
yeah, that's true. That represents risk because if the market goes down, I still owe all the money. Um, also, kind of funny side note, I applied for a mortgage and I got rejected, you know, really? uh, because I had no job. I was an unemployed person. And I, I pointed out to the, uh, the loan guy, I was like, I have almost $4 million in the bank. Um, clearly, I'm good for it. And they're like, doesn't matter. But like, I could have, like, I'm an employable guy at this point in my life. I could have gone and gotten a job and shown him one W-2. And he'd be like, great, we'll give you a 30-year mortgage. Um, it's just it's kind of the silliness of the of the uh, mortgage. That's so funny. I mean, I think I could have gotten a mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I think if I'd like, you know. <laughs> How do they not? Yeah. Is it just, the, it's the bureaucracy of the way the, the way the loan, the loans work, don't they? Isn't it? You know, honestly, I think that they have no motivation to give a mortgage to someone like me because they know that I might just pay it off in a year. Oh, Whereas if because they I can't make profit it, off of it. That's why they give loans and, and that's right. why credit, because it brings us to, it's a great, great transition into the next subject, which is debt. People want you to be in debt. Yeah. Is that true? They want you to be in debt because they, they make money off of that. There's profit. There's 20% annual interest on credit cards alone. Yeah. So, you know, I'm basically conspiracy theory level on this stuff, which I think that there's like a massive, like every massive company, whether it's a debt company, like a credit card, or it's a, um, you know, just a retail company or whatever, they like the status quo of people living beyond their means, borrowing a bunch of money. Like, so if I'm Target or something, yeah, I want someone to take out a credit card, spend a bunch of money today. And then I don't really care if they have to work another 10 years to pay it back because it's going on my, like my revenue top line, bottom line today. Right. And credit cards certainly like that because they're getting 20% interest on the credit card. You know, everyone likes that except the consumer and the consumer is basically getting screwed. And we should be teaching this in school, but you know, the big money, the big money lobbyists, no, no one is pushing a, a curriculum change for personal finance because it doesn't benefit the big money lobbyists. Right. And so that, I think that kind of speaks to why we're still in this place of not having financial education in schools. But yeah, I'm, I'm very anti-debt. I think that there's, you know, I have like kind of a order of priority about when, how you how you prioritize your money. First thing is if you have a 401k, you contribute up to the match. So if you happen to have an employer that offers a 401k, it's a type of investment. Match means if you put money in, they put money in. If you don't do that, it's basically flushing that money down the toilet. It's an instant 100% return. You can't beat that anywhere. So that's the first thing you do. And then the second thing you do is pay off all your non-mortgage debt. Another very crazy concept to people who are used to living in debt. But if you have credit cards, student loans, car loan, car lease, medical debt, personal debt, borrowed money, whatever, pay it all off because it's just sucking the financial life out of you every month. When you go to work, you work your ass off all month and you take all your money and you just put it into the banks that have been, that, that is stuff that you spent in the past. And, and if you continue to borrow, make those payments, you're just going to have the financial life sucked out of you forever. And so that's why it requires this extreme focus and hard work to just go nuts, go ham, as I say, pay off all the debt. And then when your debt's paid off and your income is free of the shackles, then you can move on to the investing phases. Which is huge for me. Like I'll openly admit, you know, uh, when I went, when I became self-employed, uh, there was a few times where I couldn't uh, pay the rent, but luckily they had a portal where you could pay it online with a credit card. And I thought of the genius idea of being like, you know what? I didn't get the clients I needed this month. I'm going to pay. But I did that consistently over a few times. There was times when jobs required certain equipment. And I'm like, you know what? I'll pay it off a thing, but then the client doesn't pay. 
And then I found myself over the course of five years realizing that I didn't even splurge on anything fancy. It was rent and gear that was supposed to get me to where I needed to go only to find out that it was more expensive in the long term than me just saving up and getting the gear or me getting a job while I try to build my business. Two of the worst, talk about, you know, somebody who like owned a place and like, oh, it was the worst investment ever. Worst idea ever was thinking that that was going to be a safe strategy for me to keep doing just because I didn't want to go get a job while I built a business at the same time. So yeah, Yeah. 100%. I was considering like building my investments while I did this, but you're right. If I have this debt on my back, which isn't isn't much, it isn't student debt, that's for sure. That's crippling debt, but it's enough debt to where like, I need to pay it off so that I can actually start investing in things because until I do, technically I'm in the negatives. Yeah, I, you, you touched on something there, which is like, I think a little stroke of brilliance that I think that you may not have even realized, which is you said, hey, I had to pay my rent and I had to buy gear for my um, my business, which are both perfectly reasonable things to spend money on. And so I think a lot of people find themselves in a similar situation and their conclusion is, I have no choice. I must just go into debt. But you instantly kind of suggested a couple of alternatives. You said, hey, I could have saved up for the gear and bought it a little later, or I could have like, gotten some more income and figured out how to pay my rent. And so like those little mindset shifts and saying, okay, if you just throw up your hands and say, okay, that's the only option, you're going to get just raked over the coals by the debt industry. They're just going to suck you dry for everything you're worth. And if you're like, okay, hey, I'm going to do the slightly more uncomfortable thing, save up money for a couple more months. And you're like, you're, you know, your client, like if you bring a camera A or camera B, your client's probably not going to give a shit. Like you'll be able to make it work if you borrow <laughs> one or whatever. Like, you know, I, I, I'm a photographer and, and like, you know, videographer a little bit. Like I know how much this costs and how, like, it doesn't really matter, you know, like it's nice You're right. and whatever, You're but right. you can make it work. Right. Looking back, it wasn't worth it. it. <laughs> right. And so you like, you could just push that expense off a little month, a, a little while until you pay for it. Or you could go get the side also go do the two months, two, two weeks a month or two days a week at a, as a bartender. And if you do those things and you avoid that debt, then, your future prospects have this like huge amplification, right? It's like that you kind of get to realize those numbers we talked about at the beginning where you can start to put that couple hundred bucks a month away and then see that millions of dollars. Whereas if you just like, eh, what I'm going to do, got to pay rent, got to, got to buy this gear. Then you push yourself back five or 10 years, you're paying this off. And then, you know, the difference between like a 30 year time frame and a 40 year time frame is pretty, you know, I know especially you're with compounding like, interest. Like, no, don't, don't make, right, don't exactly. even tell me the number. I already know. <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's not like you're screwed or whatever. It's just like, no. it would have been better the yeah, other way. You're right. right. So, it may take but, about but five like, years to yeah. like comfortably pay it off or I could be aggressive yeah. and get it done. Uh, and like stop having Starbucks for like a few years, <laughs> you know? And, 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 uh, you know, it's not like I have a lot of Starbucks, but you know, cold brew happens to be a favorite of mine. Um, and just drink regular ass coffee. You know, there, there's, there's, there's things I should consider just like you're saying, because the longer that the debt sits there, the more interest, because 20% interest, not even your investments earn that much. It's literally robbery. Oh yeah. It's like, it's like, uh, it's like, like loan shark. It's like a loan shark situation where the, where the, yeah, the, the interest is just so insanely high and, and credit card companies, I think feel entitled to that because a lot of people don't end up ever paying and they declare bankruptcy. And so credit card companies say, uh, Hey, we have to charge these insane rates because these are like not good borrowers or whatever. But if you're someone who's like trying not to declare bankruptcy and not like ruin your financial future, or whatever, and paid off, 
you're just gonna, I mean, I mean, 20%, like, you know, like 10% is what gets you to a million dollars. 20% would be like, I can't, I don't know the number because it's just, it's, it's just an absurd number, right? It's billionaire so when you're, when you're paying, yeah, it's like, you literally, it's just, it's so crazy. So yeah, you, you need to get out of that as soon as possible. And so, yeah. So when I, you know, advise people or have this discussion, like in your situation, I say, Hey, it's as hard and as fast as you can go, stop all investing, stop all spending, like get the side hustle. Like if you can get that five year down to three years or two years and you just go nuts and you're just throwing these chunky thousand dollar, $2,000 payments at the, at the debt as fast as you can, then when you're debt free, then you can say, okay, take a step back, take a breather. And then say, okay, if I'm, if I'm throwing 2000 a month of the debt and then start investing a thousand a month afterwards, then you open up a thousand bucks a month just for comfort and spending. And then a thousand bucks a month is going into investing. That's usually a pretty good strategy. And you already said, if you just put $250, was it $250 a month for 10 years, you'd be doing pretty good in an investment. So at a thousand dollars a month, that's even better. Right. And so, yeah, that 250, you did require 40 years to kind of guarantee sure. the, the millionaire status. But yeah, yeah, the the less time you have, the more money you need to put away. Um, and for sure, and, or the more money you want, you know, if you, you're 30, if you want to get there at 65, it's still whatever it is, 34 years, that's, that's still a very long time frame. Um, so if you wanted to have 5 million at retirement, so you could live on 200,000 or whatever, then you would want to be putting, yeah, like a thousand, 1500 a month, like the bigger and earlier you can put those payments away, the more wealth you're going to have. So if I wanted to retire in the next 10 years, <laughs> the amount of money, well, I'd say 15 because if I, unless I can be aggressive about it, I still have to pay the debt off, right? But if I want, let's say 10 years for the random person who doesn't have any debt, how much money should they aggressively be investing in to be able to live the, the, the millionaire, the millionaire uh, investment? 10 years is tough. Uh, if so, if you're starting from zero, zero, right, debt, right, zero right. that's tough to get, to get there in 10 years. So to get there again, is basically 25 times your annual spending. Ah. You basically, you need, you basically need to invest 60% of your pay. And so if you made a hundred thousand bucks a year and you spend 40,000 bucks a year, 60,000 times 10 years is 600,000 plus the growth of the, of the, um, of the market over that period of time would get you to about a million and a million is 25 times 40,000. And so, you know, and, and that ratio exists, whatever your income is. Right. So basically if you want to get there in 10 years, you have to live on 40% of your income and invest 60%. If you want to get there in 12 years, it's 50, 50. If you want to get there in 20 years, I have to look it up, but okay. it's all on my Instagram feed, sure. but you know, the, the, the bigger, the bigger you put away every, every month, like the more years of your life you're buying back, which is which is worth it to me. That's it right there. That's the title for this episode. Buy your life back. That's huge, like man. That's huge. I mean, I think that's yeah. I think that's where happiness comes from. I don't think it comes from stuff. I think it comes from freedom and choices and flexibility and and your, your time. I think that's what money really can buy that's valuable, not driving a BMW and going to a job you hate, you know? No, th that's huge, man. You can literally, people say money doesn't buy happiness. I don't know. In this, in this context, it really can. <laughs> it, it can buy freedom and freedom usually makes people happy. Right, right.
Jeremy, man, this this is huge. If people want to reach out to you, any plug, I mean, the red carpet's out for you now, man. Like, what would you like to direct people towards? Where can they follow you? Where do you want them to go? I'm a very easy dude to find online. Personal Finance Club is the name of my website and Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, all that good stuff. So you can go to personalfinanceclub.com or Google it. Um, most of the magic is currently happening on Instagram where I post every single day, like kind of bite-sized, punchy infographics that help you uh, on your journey along this money course. Cool. Um, so everybody, thanks for listening in. It's going to be huge. If you listen this far, there's no way you're not prepared for the road ahead. Uh, and like he said, you could reach out to him. Uh, if I were you and I heard this, I would share it with everyone I care about because it doesn't get any simpler than the way it was just broken down, like at all. And and truly, he makes himself very available. Uh, I reached out to him and he was open to it. Now, granted, you know, it's I have a podcast platform that I'm, I'm working on. Uh, and I think that anything you're doing is going to involve money long term. Just looking at this in this way is going to be the best, especially because he on his Instagram, he breaks down a lot of things too, like uh, how to take advantage of your 401ks in more detail, like all the things that you may have heard him mention. He breaks it down into further detail. And I think you have a course, right, Jeremy? Like you, you teach a course. Uh, yes, actually not yet released. I'm releasing on October 1st, which is basically you know, every day I basically get the question, how do I invest? And I, you know, we went through almost everything in this hour, but I just really want a way to like mainline my brain into what they need to know. And so I'm basically breaking it down into like a bunch of little lessons, like every little thing that you need, like how do you open an account? Which account do you open? Why do you not buy individual stocks? Why do you not time the market? Um, which index funds, which ticker symbols, the different types of, you know, everything you need to know is basically just laid out A to Z. There's no secrets in the course. It's not the get rich quick. It's literally the exact same stuff that's on my Instagram, this exact same stuff that's in every classic book on investing. But maybe to some people, it might uh, be the format they need to to walk them through it A through Z. Huge, huge. All right, uh, there you guys have it. Uh, this is it. There you have it. And uh, now I have the information too. Believe me, I benefited from this as much as uh, any listener will. Jeremy, thank you for stopping by, man. My pleasure. That was awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Blueprint. I hope it was helpful. And as always, I'm open to feedback. Please follow our guest where they directed you to. And also connect with me on LinkedIn. Or you can even get more personal and connect with me on Instagram. Either way, let's network. Let's build. And let me know who else you'd like to hear about. What other industries and professions you're interested in?